Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Noam Chomsky, Michael Moore, John Pilger, Stella Morris, and Nora Barrows-Friedman all speak out in support of Julian Assange. All this and much more coming right at you. Stay tuned. I saw that we could achieve a lot of reform with a little bit of work. In some cases, one classified video can possibly stop a war. A military chopper opens fire. Instruments of genocide. WikiLeaks unmasked the lie. By central command, gunsight video nails the murder scene down. Julian told the truth about the war machine. It's getting late in the hour. Don't wait another minute to speak truth to power. Up in flames, Baghdad on fire. Julian Assange gave that a name. Collateral murder, a family shredded and maimed. Journalists died, who will remember the name? Hello, and welcome to today's panel. I'm your host, Nora Barrows-Friedman of the Electronic Intifada. And I'm absolutely delighted and honored and uh, honestly a little daunted to be joined today by none other than Noam Chomsky, John Pilger, Michael Moore, and Stella Morris. I also want to thank the inimitable Lena Al-Aryan and the Coalition for Civil Freedoms for putting this festival together and doing the work to bring together all of these visionaries, artists, and historians over the past few weeks in order to better understand the permanent war state and take action for justice in these troubling times. I wanted to announce that for those uh, who have missed the initial screenings of John Pilger's The War You Don't See and Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11, re-screenings will take place right after this panel discussion and on Wednesday, October 27th, you can register for that at wotfilmfestival.com. Okay, so our panelists need absolutely no introduction. Uh, Welcome all of you and thank you for being with us uh, today. Oh, you're all muted. (laughs) 
the catchphrase of 2021. Um, I wanted to structure this panel as a conversation between you all, each of you who have taken on the responsibilities of telling the truth, of monitoring the centers of power, of translating for the world how that power works, how consent is manufactured, how wars are bought and sold, and how empires seek to destroy and silence those who expose the lies. John's film begins with footage of U.S. occupation soldiers firing onto a group of people from attack helicopters in Iraq, attacks that killed Reuters reporters and severely injured small children. The video was obtained from military whistleblowers and published by WikiLeaks, whose founder, Julian Assange, of course, has been smeared, imprisoned, and recently it was revealed that even the CIA orchestrated a plot to kidnap and assassinate him. Professor Chomsky has a limited amount of time, so I want to start with you and then turn to John and Stella and Michael about the work uh, to defend Assange, the rights of reporters who have challenged the deceptions of the U.S. government and where we go from here. Um, Professor Chomsky, your book uh, with Ed Herman, Manufacturing Consent, uh, is a seminal, instructive work that was crucial to my own education as a journalist. Talk about how you've seen this at play in terms of the propaganda over the last 20 years to get the American public to accept this permanent war state and how the Pentagon has used embedded reporters, uh, for example, to sell this fiction. Oh, Professor Chomsky, you're muted. Oh, no. There we go. Okay. First, we should begin by recognizing that it's not the last 20 years. Uh, It'll be more realistic to say the last 70 years. It would be even more realistic to say the last 250 years. Uh, The United States is one of those very rare countries. I don't know if there's another one that has been at war virtually every year since it was founded. Uh, The American Revolution was largely uh, an effort to throw off a British restriction on colonization. The British had blocked colonization west of the eastern range of mountains, the Appalachian Mountains. Colonists weren't accepting that. Certainly not George Washington, major land speculator. Uh, as soon as the British were thrown out, the U.S. the colonists began invading the territory of the Indian nations, and it was a war understood to be a war of extermination and destruction. Meanwhile, picking up half of Mexico, end of the century, that phase of war was over. Went on in other ways. By after the Second World War, there was a change. The United States essentially replaced Britain as the world dominant power, actually to an extent that Britain had never reached. In fact, no country had ever reached. And it was understood that in order to get the America, the United States was in a position of security that had no parallel in history, controlled the entire Western Hemisphere, both oceans, opposite sides of both oceans, basically 
nothing. But it was necessary to maintain the stance of a world-dominant power that is ready to stamp out anything that challenges this domination. And in order to do that, you had to put the country on a war fitting. Well, then comes the propaganda. How do you do that? It was explained very simply by senior uh, senator, Republican senator, major figure in foreign policy, Arthur Vandenberg. He said simply, you have to scare hell out of the country. That's the last 70 years. You have to find different ways to scare hell out of the country. Now, what about the last 20 years? Well, there was a bit of a problem when the Russian so-called threat disappeared. It was hard to conjure it up after the 1990s. There's efforts again to do it, but it's not easy. So you had to turn to something else. It was a brief period in the 90s when they experimented with the idea of what was called humanitarian intervention. We have to attack every country in the world because it's good for them. Plenty of history behind this. Britain was doing the same thing for centuries. France, others. Well, that didn't work too well. So, fortunately, there was a terrorist attack. Okay, we have to fight a war, global war on terror. Actually, Reagan had already declared it 20 years ago, but it before, but it didn't work that well. Uh, now there are new enemies. So we have to keep, uh, right now there's what's called a pivot to Asia, which means that we have to resuscitate the Chinese threat. That's an old one. It goes back to the 19th century, yellow peril. So we have to keep, that's easy to resuscitate. So 1950s, there was a huge yellow peril that sort of subsided for a while. Now it's up again. The China threat is what is threatening to destroy us. And as usual, we can ask ourselves exactly what is the China threat, just as we could have asked ourselves about the other threats. Uh, Back to the days when the Declaration of Independence was condemning King George because he unleashed against us the merciless Indian savages. So there was that threat. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, of course, knew better, but that's the way you scared hell out of the country. Uh, uh, After the Second World War, right now it's the China threat. So what's that? Exactly how is China threatening us? best answer I've seen to that was by a distinguished international statesman, former Prime Minister of Australia, Paul Keating, who asked the question, what is the China threat? And his answer was China's existence, which is correct. China is carrying out a crime. It's it's stated in the official U.S. record repeatedly. It's the crime of successful defiance. The 60-year war against Cuba is because, as the internal records explain explicitly, back in the Kennedy days, uh, Cuba, Castro is carrying out successful defiance of U.S. policies going back 
then they said 150 years, meaning to the Monroe Doctrine, 1823, which declared the U.S. right to dominate the hemisphere. Couldn't implement it then. Britain was too strong. But it was understood that over time, U.S. strength would increase, British would decline. You could implement the Monroe Doctrine, dominate the hemisphere. And Cuba was defying it, successfully defying it. War, a terrorist war, murderous terrorist war, virtually left to war, led to world war, brutal sanctions, basically a blockade. Entire world is opposed. Look at the votes at the UN. The latest one is 184 to 2. Uh, Israel has to vote with the United States client state. Uh, but the entire world accepts the blockade because the, the godfather is too threatening. So Europe accept, hates, opposes the blockade, but accepts it. You don't interfere with the godfather in an international society that runs kind of like the mafia. Well, what about China? China's a big problem. It's successfully defying U.S. power, and you can't intimidate it. It's not like Europe. Can't intimidate it. That's a real problem. So that's a major threat, and we can expect that possibly to lead to global terminal war. Uh, you look at the details, it's really shocking. So the U.S. has to send naval forces. Uh, Britain, which is trying to pretend it's still a world power, has to chime in by sending a ship into the South China Sea, say, here, we're, we're here too, you know. Uh, what is at issue? What's at issue is supposed to be, according to the propaganda, freedom of navigation. You have to protect freedom of navigation. There is no threat whatsoever to freedom of navigation. There has never been any slight impediment to freedom of navigation. What's at stake is something different. What's at stake is an unclear element in the law of the sea. 1982 Law of the Sea, which the United States upholds, overlooking the fact that it's the only maritime power not even to have ratified the Law of the Sea. But nonetheless, we have to defend it. The Law of the Sea establishes what are called exclusive economic zones. Every maritime country has a 200-mile exclusive economic zone. The question that is at issue is what foreign activities are permitted within the exclusive zones. China and India say no milit military activities. In fact, the United States, yes, says you can have military activities. Uh, India just vigorously protested U.S. military maneuvers in its economic zone. Well, this goes back to the, you look back at the law of the sea, what it says is there cannot be any threat or use of force in the maritime zones. So the question is, is there a threat of force when the U.S., Britain send in uh, 
advanced naval vessels into the uh, sea for whatever they're doing there. Obviously a question for diplomacy and negotiations, not for sending in naval armadas, raising provocations. Uh, Even worse, Britain and the United States uh, agreeing to send Australia advanced nuclear submarines for no strategic purpose whatsoever. They will not even be operative for about 15 years, but you have to show your force. You have to intimidate people. You have to raise the level of provocation. We have to have a China threat to terrify us, to maintain world domination and, in fact, large parts of the economy. That's the threat of China. That's what we're facing. There's plenty wrong with China. A lot to condemn. Lots of other countries, too, but it's not a threat to us. It's a threat to the people of China, people within its domains. But uh, just like um, Donald Trump is famous for his lies, but by accident, every once in a while, a true statement got through for which he gets bitterly condemned. So at one point he said, so are we so innocent? The roof fell in. Can't say that, but it was an accidental true statement. Yeah, and it's, and, and we are. It's now not a small matter. The raising of the level of provocation, uh, the uh, development of new, more advanced weapons, sending a, a nuclear weapons, a nuclear submarine fleet to Australia, off the coast of China. All of that could break out into war. And if there's a war, we're done. That's it. That's the situation we're facing. And John Pilger, I, it, it wasn't part of the film festival uh, this round, but, but you have made a, a recent film about the, the coming war on China and the so-called pivot to Asia that Professor Chomsky was talking about. Um, and and Michael, you you know, in in your film, um, you talk about you know fear as a currency to sell these kinds of wars, to sell this idea of a, a you know a faraway boogeyman that you know ordinary Americans should should fear at every corner. Um, meanwhile, you know, um, reporters who who. Uh, dissect these stories and expose the deceit and the, you know, these provocations by the Pentagon and the highest levels of government um, are are being persecuted. Um, so I, I do want to talk about Julian Assange. Um, we have Stella Morris here. Stella, um, bring us up to date on his case. There's an extradition hearing next week, I believe. Um, can you, can you talk about what's, what's, uh, what's happening with Julian? Um, Julian has a, well, it's the U.S.'s appeal because they lost in January and now they're appealing just two days before Trump left office. He, he lodged the appeal and kind of locked in, um, the Biden administration and the Biden administration, of course, has taken a different position, um, formally or presentationally in relation to press freedom uh and um 
but continues to pursue this case, which is the biggest threat uh, to press freedom globally and as well to the First Amendment in the United States uh, in history. Uh, Julian is being um, is facing extradition. He's facing 175 years in prison, 18 charges, um, 17 of them under the Espionage Act, and he's being accused of receiving and possessing and publishing uh, information to the public. And that information was the uh, Afghan war logs uh, and the Iraq war diaries, uh, the State Department cables, Guantanamo Bay files, as well as a collateral murder video, uh, specifically the rules of engagement, which is just, uh, in fact, the rules uh, uh, through which the U.S. military uh, kills and so Julian, um, Julian is, is facing life in prison because of this material which exposed in detail uh, the war on terror, the different um, aspects of the war on terror. I think of it as a hydra, you know, this mythical Greek uh, serpent with many heads, and it has different aspects to it. You have the... Um, assassination squads, you have the rendition, you have the institutionalized torture, you have the uh, means by which the U.S. government uh, undermined judicial processes, criminal investigations in the countries that it could strong arm into abandoning those investigations, for example, in Germany, um, the German citizen Khalid al-Masri, who was abducted and uh, taken to a black site, uh, tortured. Um, and uh, then the CIA realized that they had a case of mistaken identity, and then they dumped him in Macedonia. And eventually, Khalid al-Masri, who was a German citizen, was able to go to the Euro European Court of Human Rights. And he used the WikiLeaks uh, diplomatic cables in order to evidence uh, the fact that he had been renditioned and the evidence in the cables also showed how the U.S. government had forced or used its force um, to get the German government to stop uh, the investigation into the U.S. citizens who were involved in his abduction and torture and kidnapping. Uh, so WikiLeaks is actually a product of of the war on terror, a product of wanting to expose, to um, remove the secrecy and the impunity uh, that was total uh, in the years that followed uh, the September 11th attacks, where uh, a state of exception was um, institutionalized and uh, made permanent and uh, the the tools of that um, war on terror uh, these different heads of the hydra have also then crept into uh, the domestic legislation um, what what has been done to julian has been um, to also use those tools that were developed through the war on terror. So in this recent uh, news story, uh, a 7,500-word investigation by uh, 
Yahoo News, um, which detailed, you know, it was incredibly well sourced. Uh, they had over 30, 30, um, sources from, from the Trump administration, from the current administration. Some of them, uh, named sources very high up, um, very knowledgeable and who, uh, acknowledged that there was uh, an extraordinary uh, plan uh, to take out WikiLeaks and that the CIA was operated in a, in a uh, state of um, impunity and secrecy uh, and was able to redefine journalism, journalists, as what they called non-state hostile intelligence service. Um, they just came up with a sui generis uh, 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 term in order to escape uh, oversight, in order to operate in secret and plot uh, to, to kill Julian. And that story talks about how um, Mike Pompeo at the time, who was CIA director, discussed uh, with the White House the killing of Julian um, and received, tasked, set out, um, issued tasking orders and received uh, sketches and options about how to kill Julian. Not not just those sketches and options, but also how to kidnap him from the embassy and how to rendition him from the embassy. So this, this war on terror tool that the CIA has in its toolbox, it then wanted to deploy against a journalist uh, for doing his job, and that's that's in the piece. The uh, the CIA was motivated by revenge. It was motivated by revenge because one of the first things that WikiLeaks published uh, in the Trump presidency was the CIA Vault Seven release. Now, the CIA Vault Seven release uh, publication uh, is less known than the Snowden publications, um, but it is the equivalent. Uh, with Vault 7, WikiLeaks um, showed the uh, the world the illegal uh, spying activities of uh, the CIA, just like Snowden had done for the NSA. The difference is that the NSA doesn't even have, or didn't at the time of the Snowden revelations, even have a PR department. The CIA, on the other hand, has... Well, you know, a massive uh, propaganda department um, with its tentacles going into many, many media organizations. It also has uh, assassination programs. It also has rendition programs. It has torture uh, programs. And so, um, and, and uh, that story also says that, in fact, those kidnapping uh, plans predated Pompeo coming into office. So he came into office on the 23rd of January 2017. So we're not talking about just Pompeo being rogue. We're talking about the CIA um, wanting to take revenge on Julian, and they have taken revenge. They didn't kill him yet, but they're trying to kill him. Um, and I think... It's um, a big part of the the, the um, attempt to to silence Julian forever is 
that in order to assassinate a person, first you have to assassinate their character. And that's what you saw from 2017 onwards. You have the CIA um, at the latest by April 2017. They knew perfectly well. They knew they had established uh, that Julian and WikiLeaks were not some kind of Russian agent. That's why they had to invent that term, non-state hostile intelligence service, because they knew, right, the CIA is the agency that is tasked with finding out whether, you know, whether someone is, is uh, someone's agent or not. They are, they have unlimited resources to find out, and they knew, and that's why they had to come up with a new term, because all Julian and WikiLeaks does is journalism, and they had to redefine it in order to make it a threat uh, to the state because it was not, um, because the CIA considered that WikiLeaks publications um, didn't toe the line, basically. And so WikiLeaks had to be eliminated and Julian had to be eliminated. And this article um, uh, talks about how, even within the administration, um, they recognized that these these activities, these actions, these operations were motivated out of revenge, not because of the real threat, any real threat that WikiLeaks posed, but it was pure revenge. And uh, I mean, it's just extraordinary what we've found out uh, over the past um, since Julian was was arrested. Uh, Julian. Uh, Julian was arrested in 2019. He was dragged out of the embassy. And then whistleblowers started coming forward. Uh, the whistleblowers who were working inside the embassy, who were basically the agents, they were the agents of the CIA inside the embassy. They said they were the agents of the CIA inside the embassy. Um, and they had uh, discussed kidnapping plots and poisoning plots inside the embassy. Uh, they had instructions about uh, uh Stealing a nappy from our baby, our six-month-old baby, um, in order to establish that that uh, he was uh, Julian's son. Uh, the the plans that the so we have the we had information about the implementation of these operations uh, through the the security company that was working in the embassy, and we know that because a Spanish court is investigating that. Uh, and and they have mountains of uh, forensic um, uh, data from from that period that Pompeo was head of the CIA, and now we have on the other side uh, the the uh, thirty sources for this Yahoo story um, who have confirmed the planning stages of of um, what was going on inside the embassy. Uh, so it's it's completely extraordinary. I mean this this. Uh, the 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 attack on on uh, Julian is an attack on the public's right to know. It's an attack on uh, our right to to know what was going on uh, and what goes on um, with with uh, these incredibly uh, unaccountable and powerful, ever more powerful organizations. I mean, the war on terror. Um, so-called, uh, started this um, chipping away at our rights and the beginning of the total surveillance state. And we have no, we have old tools to try to uh, fight against these 
enormous powers and it's not enough. So we need uh, WikiLeaks, we need courageous people, we need whistleblowers in order to try to uh, get behind, uh, expose uh, the, the total power and the total impunity and the total lawlessness because what's been happening, what's been done to Julian, what's being done to Julian is a crime. They are the criminals, they are the torturers, they are the killers, and they've put Julian in prison because he exposed them. Thank you so much, Stella. Um, John and Michael, I want to get your responses, um, you know, to what Stella said and, and what Professor Chomsky said. He he just had to leave, so we bid him farewell. Um, about, uh, you know, this... Nora, <clears throat> before we go yeah. on... Um, Stella, can you um, make sure that everybody watching and listening to this has that link of the Yahoo News yeah. story, whether you post it here on your platform, Nora, or Stella, uh, give us, give the people watching and listening to this a place to go to read this incredibly important uh, story. Great. Yeah. Um, Lena says that it will be posted. Um, okay, great. So Thank you. Here on the website. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I want to talk about this, like, you know, in, in John's film, um, uh, you, you talk to someone who says that basically the facts don't matter. When you're dealing with the, you know, national security state and especially, you know, the, the so-called war on terror, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what, what the reality is, what the facts are. What matters is what the, what the government, what U.S. imperialism wants to do, what its goal is. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the case of Assange and whistleblowers and and how um, the mainstream corporate media is selling this ongoing series of illusions to try and assassinate Julian Assange's character, like Stella said, um, and and to, to prep us for for a, a coming war? Listening to Stella's eloquence describing, and I know how difficult it is for her, describing a whole sweep of history uh, of Julian. And really, though she was concentrating on this latest revelation, uh, there's so much more. That's, of course, just the surface. And I think what... Professor Chomsky was saying, and what Stella was saying, uh, is something that a mass of people are not going to hear. They'll hear it when a film of Michael's comes out, or perhaps when a film of mine uh, comes out, but they won't. So we're a select group. When Professor Chomsky was talking about China and provocation, but the provocation on China uh, is the most dangerous of all. There are 400 US bases surrounding China, all the way from Australia up through the Pacific, right through Asia, across Eurasia, constantly, uh, day after day, US drones, US warplanes, probe Chinese space, almost on a war footing. Almost none of this is reported. And a ridiculous British aircraft carrier and uh, 
the usual fleet of provocative American ships turn up in the South China Sea, and that is news. Now, I, I, I'm sure we could be here all night if we were going to end up criticizing the news because we've done all done that. Uh, but but really, it's why are these why are these myths? Why is the myth that China is a threat still understood by uh, by most people? Why is there a criminal silence? Has there has there been a criminal silence for the last ten, eleven years over the crime done to Julian Assange? and the great public service performed by Julian Assange. I mean, the last hearing, I remember, uh, and Stella will be so used to this, uh, was on August the 11th. I don't remember. There were there, there appeared to be a lot of press there, but they were press from what we used to call, without it sounding pejorative, I hope it doesn't, the alternative press. Uh, the BBC turned up for one day and decided they were bored. In fact, the BBC correspondent said it was all rather repetitive and left. Uh, and the same thing happened at the Old Bailey in September of 2020. So people are not aware of that. And that and this propaganda by omission, propaganda by silence, is is the greatest threat in my view. Because if we don't know about it, how can we resist it? How can people resist it? Uh, China surely is bad. It's doing bad things to the Uyghurs. The fact that the Uyghurs might, might be, might, there might be an entirely different story about the Uyghurs uh, is, is, of course, unmentionable. The Guardian newspaper has a reporter in Taiwan who reports the mainland and all of Asia. She is a, a propagandist. Uh, I mean, propaganda on a level of, of, uh, of Lord Hawhorn, World War II style, but simply not mentioning it. Julian, for, for, for in, the, in the early part of Julian's struggle, when uh, the lies that were told about him were legion, one after the other, that was the coverage. That was the coverage. It was a coverage of lies. Now it's a coverage of silence. And yet everything Stella, Stella says is correct. The, the impact of the judgment of the decision made by the judges on the 27th and 28th of October will have an enormous effect on, uh, uh, well, I know it's... We say the free press. I actually don't believe there is a free press, but it will have an enormous impact on on the honourable exceptions, the journalists and filmmakers who try to get their work out to a mass audience. So it is that propaganda that really I think is our is our greatest threat. And 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 uh, um, be interesting to hear what Michael says about this because. Michael is is a pioneer in breaking through this, uh, but uh, there are few of us. That's fine. There always always was few, but um, in in it, I think 
we we can't assume that people have this basic knowledge uh, that that even when you mention Julian's name to people now there is yes he what, why is he in prison they will ask questions there won't be answers to those questions because there's nothing in the daily media that will give them those answers. Um, I often thought there's two issues in the world that um, maybe there's three now, if we had China, I suppose, but there's two issues that uh, if you understood those, then you understood so much else. One was Julian Assange and the other was Palestine. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Michael, your thoughts on, on whistleblowers and, and the, the notion of a, a free press and, and how journalists um, should, should be, you know, watching what's happening to people like Julian Assange. Well, <clears throat> it all seems so strange to me that... Um, the New York Times and other publications uh, were very happy to use uh, Julian's um, brave dissemination of the truth. Um, but as soon as, uh, as soon as the orders came down that the uh, narrative had to change, they were very willing to become uh, complicit in the changing of that narrative. I, um, in full disclosure, I, I put up, uh, either part or all of Julian's initial bail money. I, um, I, um, am putting it up knowing if you understand bail money, you, you, you get the, you get the money back when they, uh, show up and knowing that there was a good chance that, uh, he might not show up. Uh, I, I, I knew that, I knew that that was a, a, a very, um, worthy, gift and contribution to this um, uh, and to protect him. I, I visited him there uh, in the uh, embassy, in the, in the little office uh, that he was living in, living as uh, a, 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 um, a liberal use of the word lib, uh, uh, living because uh, it was an awful thing to witness, frankly. And um, and I wanted to stay as long as I could because I um, he needs and needed needs still that support and and that um, you know that helping hand. Um, so I would ask uh, anybody who's listening to this uh, that. Uh, if you have found yourself falling for any of the propaganda, um, uh, that you step back and and come back into the light and um, um, uh, be grateful for those who have, with great courage, uh, been willing to tell us and the world what we've been up to and how we tried to pull it off, uh, whether it was invading Afghanistan, invading Iraq, the, uh, the the scene there that uh, there at the beginning of John's film of of uh, footage of us uh, ending the lives 
of people, just people. And we have so much to pay for and so much to make up for so much. I'm a big believer in redemption. Um, it has stunned me through my entire American life, the lack of a desire to seek redemption, to starting with how this country was formed, um, founded in genocide and built on the backs of slaves, and, and never, never really uh, coming to terms with that, being honest about it making up for the descendants of those who made it through and lived barely, but still remain today on the absolute bottom rungs of our American ladder. Um, Black Americans, Native Americans, uh, somewhat share that bottom rung and, and nothing has allowed them because there are the feet, the feats, <laughs> the foots of hundreds of millions of Americans, white people, um, that keep them in that place. President Biden had a town hall the other night on CNN, and a black man came up to the microphone, um, said he was a, a doctoral student at Morgan State uh, University, and um he thanked uh, the president and said he voted for him and and uh, happy that he won. But we're in the same spot, he said. Nothing really has changed. And um, we have been left behind once again. And what are you going to do about that? And the look on Biden's face. And, you know, I, I think... You know, I don't. I don't want to uh, uh, generalize about elderly people, but one of the great, and there are many great things about the wisdom of the aged, is it's not a cliche to say that life is short. It is short at that point, and they don't want. And Biden, I've noticed, has no filter now. People watching or listening, you know what I'm talking about, right? Your parents, your grandparents. And there's just something beautiful about this, that he just looked at this guy. He knew the man spoke the truth. And then he just said, you're absolutely right. And um, I have failed. I, in these first nine months, um, my greatest regret, the greatest regret of my life now is how I've not come through for black Americans and that, that he and the Democrats have let the voting rights thing die. Um, it, it was, um, it was, it was quite a moment, not one you usually see on TV. Um, and frankly, I, I mean, I, I did not, I, I've been opposed to Biden my, my adult life. It seems like, cause he was in the Senate when he was, I think he was elected when he was 29. Um, the things that he has done and stood for, I mean, the, the list is long and shameful. Um, that I never expected that that these nine months would include some sort of a pivot, not a not a not a redemption and not a 
uh, let's all, you know, get on the bandwagon and cheer President Biden. But something is happening and something has happened to him personally. I don't know what it is, but I think and I for those who are Americans who are watching this, um, we need to not back down one inch right now. We all need to be active, very active. And um, and, and we can't uh, stop listening to the news media. Uh, the way that they want to frame what's going on now. Well, it's mansion and cinema against, uh, no, stop it. What's going on right now is this is a critical moment for those who believe in capitalism. They know, they know one slight tilt and the end could be near for them. They know that white supremacists know it. They know that for the last 11 years, on the first day of school every September, the majority of first graders entering first grade are not white. The country is changing. It has changed the demographics. Uh, and, and so the fear with, angry in, with inside angry white men in this country is so pronounced right now that... Um, they believe they're fighting for their lives. So I, um, I, uh, it was great listening to what uh, Noam Chomsky uh, was saying uh, there. And John, and, you're, and if, if people haven't seen this film that was put up today before this, and it's going to be played again after this, uh, please watch uh, John's film. It's, it's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. And I want to ask both of you, oh, and, and both films will screen again on Wednesday uh, as well. I want to ask both of you and, and Stella, um, you know, this, I mean, Michael, I was rewatching your film yesterday. Um, I think, you know, maybe the first time since I saw it in theaters <laughs> so many years ago. And, you know, rewatching, um, John Ashcroft singing Let the Eagle Soar really brought back a lot of <laughs> a lot of just like disbelief at, at the time that you know that yeah. we were all living in that this was actually I wish Americans could could participate in Eurovision song contest <laughs> because uh that would have been a moment right there. <laughs> Don't they already? Surely they must own it. I mean, Israel is in Eurovision for some reason. Oh, so, yeah. I'm going to right, exactly. differently about the Eurovision contest. There's <laughs> Americans in it. I'm going to watch it. <laughs> so I want to I want to ask you, uh, you know, all three of you to to briefly talk about you know your thoughts on the recent rehabilitation of George W. Bush um, oh. by the leading elites of the Democratic Party by the corporate media. Um, you know, uh, and and how this fits into what we're talking about. No one has been held accountable for any of the atrocities right. that that both of you filmmakers have have documented in your films, and and Stella, what you know, Julian has has uh, disseminated in terms of information. Um, you know, what do you make of this? Watching these films after so many years after you've made them. Well, Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld, I think for many years, I don't know if it's still true, um, really couldn't travel to certain countries for fear that they would be arrested as war criminals. 
they're still war criminals. And so, um, but I, I, I took, I guess, some satisfaction during that time. And if, it, if that time still exists, great, uh, that they are essentially prisoners of this country. Of course, Rumsfeld now is gone, but um, uh, the, the, your, I'm not sure exactly what the question is about. It, are you saying like when I watched the film all these years later? Yeah, yeah. When you rewatch yeah. it, or when you you know yeah. see these um, see these pe- these war criminals that yeah. haven't been held to account all these years later, like how what what's your reaction? How should we be feeling about this? Well, a boy can hope. First of all, hope never leaves. Um, um, it's still time to do that. I, um, you know, I think I, when I watched, uh, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 here, um, a month or so ago, um, I put it up for free on the, um, on the internets and, uh, with my, uh, with my, I put it on actually on my Substack player so that people could just could watch it, uh, for free and, um, watching it, I was so moved, um, think, remembering, thinking about how on a personal level that, that this film is sort of the anchors of the film are these two women, uh, the, the mother from Flint, Michigan, who lost her son in the first uh, couple of weeks of the, of the war in Iraq and the mother, the, the Iraqi mother who's climbing through the rubble of her home with her dead children, grandchildren and screaming out to Allah, to God, Please deal with these Americans. Please. You're not going to let them get away with us, are you? It's so powerful, you know, to to um to see that and to realize as an American the kind of grief that we've brought uh to the world. And um I, I guess maybe I'm I'm less concerned right now about I mean I I hate the whole revisionist history when it comes to Bush and his cronies, but I'm more concerned with us, the American people. Have we learned our lessons? Just with the, with the, with the um, defeat, the American defeat in Afghanistan uh, a month or so ago, um, watching the American media, listening to American voices, it seemed like a lot of Americans haven't learned the lesson. And I just felt so sad thinking that the lesson is still going to have to be learned. And the lesson is first, the first steps of the lesson are who do we, who do we slaughter next? We, the United States of America, Uh, that will have to be the first step before we have a chance to maybe try to learn that lesson again, try one more time to figure it out as to why we are such, uh, uh, what's the famous line from D.H. Lawrence, the Americans, they're such great killers. Um, for that to, for that to no longer be true, uh, this is going to take a lot of work on all of us citizens on our part. Um, otherwise the world is not safe. The world is not safe from us. Yeah, I agree with that. The world hasn't been safe from America for a very long time. In fact, during my whole lifetime. I have always regarded myself as very lucky to have got to this stage in life, uh, having reported a number of America's wars 
not to have been blown to bits by American bombs or the American bomb, the nuclear bomb. And, uh, you know, you were talking about uh, George W. Bush there, Michael, but uh, if Noam was here, I'm sure he'd, perhaps he'd correct me, but I remember, um, and I paraphrase one of his more interesting, <laughs> they're all interesting, but particularly interesting quote about uh, um, uh, one of American presidents, all American presidents, were put before the equivalent of a Nuremberg tribunal. Mm. And again, I paraphrase, Noam said something like, well, they'd all be hanged. Uh, so they're all war criminals. Mm. Harry Truman was a war criminal. Mm. Uh, the Democratic Party has started more wars than the Republicans have, uh, in spite of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, our whole world is made unsafe by the United States. The word imperialism, which we've used here, uh, is almost never used. Uh, beyond our milieu, let's say. I would, I would go further and say the word Americanism is not used. The word anti-Americanism has been used. It was used right through the 50s. It's been used against me and it's been used against, I'm sure, against Julian and others. Uh, but the term Americanism, this claiming of the... The, the, the cultural brain of the world. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akil. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.